1: Today's podcast is sponsored by June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game which transports you into a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance set in the glamorous 1920s. You'll play as June Parker as she embarks on a quest to solve her sister's murder. But that's not all. You'll let your imagination run wild as you get to customize your own luxurious estate island with expensive gardens and beautiful buildings. So, can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com/slash partners in crime media.
2: I'm Rebecca Lavoie and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers on is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts, and this week they thought by curing homosexuality they would improve people's lives. Instead, their conversion therapy ruined lives. We'll talk about the Netflix documentary Pray Away. Then the guests at this Hawaiian resort confront love, privilege, and death. We'll discuss The White Lotus from HBO. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of the These Are Their Stories podcast, my husband, co-podcaster, and love of my life, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin.
3: Three, two, (laughs) one. Hello, Rebecca.
2: (laughs) Also with us is author, private investigator, certified pet detective, and resident cat lady, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Oh, fuck. Fuck. Just kidding. <laughs> Hello, Rebecca. <laughs> and filling in for the vacationing Toby Ball, our special guest from the JV Club and the new Avatar, Braving the Elements podcast, and one of our favorite patrons slash friends slash podcasters slash comedians, Janet Varney. Hello, Janet. Hello,
3: Janet Hello. Varney. Oh,
2: my gosh. I'm so honored and excited to be
4: on. I feel the pressure to be uh a woke cynicist <laughs> <laughs> cynicist is not a word so She's I'm already off to a of very smashing season. start getting you're, you're, you're three reco- two one uh. I'm excited to be replacing no uh, no I mean listen Toby's got a lot of really good points uh, as do you all I would be very intimidated to sit in for any of you um, I am very intimidated to sit in for Toby I feel like I, there's. I'm supposed to be more skeptical and mm. perhaps more thoughtful and critical than I sometimes am when I'm watching entertainment so we'll see what happens it'll
2: be such a relief for us Janet if you're if you don't just only like boring things but you also like fun things (laughs) (laughs) I would love to
4: talk for five ten minutes about sports is that
2: cool sports ball sure (laughs) <laughs> Can we talk a little bit about a very dry history book that you think relates to something obscure that may or may not be related to the show we're watching? <laughs> He's so fucking smart. I know. Damn it. Uh. I know. Listen, someone's got to be. Um, so, Kevin, before we start the show, there's a little bit of, like, a business you wanted to do, right? Two things. Yeah.
3: One, we wanted to congratulate D, and I don't know her last name. It's W. Yeah. D-E-E-W, yeah. Uh-huh. who tweeted to us. I think her handle is Detective DD. She just started law school, and why did she start law school? She said that crime writers on and the undisclosed podcast yes. inspired her to go back to school. Yeah, I know we actually have a couple of listeners who have decided in sort of their their latter years to go back and study. How do you for- know it's their latter years? Well, we know. I, well, I- a <laughs> D says she's thirty eight.
4: D Dubs is thirty eight, and that's latter years. That (laughs) I feel like ancient. I didn't mean
3: like she's not twenty one. She went back, (laughs) changed her career, and there's some other folks too. And I'd say. That, uh, you know, we can't take credit for sending you to, to, to school, but we're glad that we exposed you to the ideas that may have inspired you.
2: Do we get free law services from these alleged lawyers that come from our podcast?
3: I, I'll take anything from an L1, you bet. <laughs>
5: oh. Well, I believe she's a longtime listener. She came to that show we did in the Creepy Mall. Really? <laughs> really? I, yeah. <laughs> Because I'm pretty sure that's when she started following me on Twitter after the creepy mall show You think that we mall, had dressing rooms. You think that
2: mall was creepy then? You should see it now. There are literally no stores and an old Sears that's now a vaccination site. It's very post-apocalyptic. Uh. So what's the other business you want to talk about, Kevin?
3: Well, uh, we want to talk about a book that's coming out. Hmm. And it's called Dead on Deadline, and the author is one Laura Bricker. Laura, what can you
5: tell us about Yay. your upcoming book? My upcoming book? Well, I mean, how long have we been here? Crime writer's on. I was like, somebody here has got to write a book. Toby's done a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So clearly, this is now my job. I need to be the one who writes Mm a book. Um, So this is a cozy slash traditional mystery set in my very own town of Exeter. Um, We have our protagonist, Piper Chinberg, who has returned home from her big city newspaper job to live with her very eccentric and fun Aunt Gladys in the large purple Victorian up on High Street. And Aunt Gladys um, had been drinking. Aunt Gladys drank a few too many martinis, danced show tunes with her gentleman caller Stanley, and fell in the mountain laurel. Hmm. Not good. Piper's home, thinks this is a boring town, and the newspaper editor is killed during the Independence Festival here in our town. So... She's on the case. Um, there's a lot of cozy as fuck. There are some scones. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there are multiple flavors of cinnamon buns with different types of drizzles and icings yes. in each scene. Oh, yeah. You're getting um,
4: Louise penny on us. Yes. Now we're going to get some crusty, toasty, hot, the smell of the cinnamon
2: buns. I love it. This yes. yeah. is going to be a Hallmark series. I see Alison right? Sweeney is. 100%. Oh, yeah. Laura Brick. I'm She's 100%. Allie, I don't know if you're listening to this podcast, but... <laughs> <laughs> in the off chance you are, if you're not, I'm just going to pitch it to you oh, anyway.
3: Would Janet yeah. be great in this role? Um, oh yeah, yeah. Janet, I don't know. Is Janet, Janet cozy? come on. Janet. I don't know.
2: Isn't but what? It
4: doesn't. Allie star in her. Her hallmark, in the movies? hallmark, stuff, She does. Yeah, she does. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. she does. I
2: yeah,
3: mean, you do. don't yeah. have a deal can, with. Hallmark? Oh, maybe I
4: could be Aunt Gladys. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh my God, Aunt Gladys
5: is is really something.
4: After all, I am in my latter years. <laughs> <laughs> you know,
5: she was lo- like shortlisted for the Rockettes, Janet. I think it's shortlisted. Totally uh,
3: Janet yes. can do the voice on the anime version.
2: Yes, that's a thing that's you right. can be to <laughs> be shortlisted or for Janet. the Rockettes. Yes, yes. Okay. You don't just get like not get a call back, you get shortlisted like for the Booker she was Prize. <laughs> yeah.
4: yeah. So she almost that means she almost got in, but then it just didn't quite happen. Yeah. Mm. No, it didn't happen. Uh, you need to do you the... could do a prequel where somebody almost kills a rock head <laughs> and she almost <laughs> makes it, but somebody has to solve the mystery of who tried to kill someone. It's yours. Take it. Allie, I hope you're listening. <laughs> Here's your second movie.
2: Hundred percent. Okay, so I'm just gonna send a link to this podcast to our friend Ali Sweeney. My friend. I don't want to say she's a Listen to the
3: podcast. To Send her it, send it a link to the book. That's true. That's true. Yeah. But I
2: feel like we've done a better job selling it maybe here. We've got like a little package, a little bit of a like. I'm up. sorry. I was all
5: rambling. I don't, I need a better elevator pitch. No, oh, be-
3: it was I great. I think Laura wants to sell it to more people than just. Allie Sweeney. Mm, So we talked about this, I think, in the business section last time, but you have a deal going, right?
5: Yeah. So this is so fun, you guys. So part of this is, I I live in Exeter, which is the setting of this book, which I said is like either a Hallmark movie or a murder mystery or both. But we just have this great local bookstore here, Water Street Bookstore, fantastic indie bookstore. That's where Dan Brown was launched. Um, It's a very supportive store for local authors. And the owner is very handsome. The owner has the best hair of any bookstore owner in New Hampshire, I'm just going to say. But. If you go to their website, uh, waterstreetbooks.com, then they will ship signed books to anywhere in the world. Nice. Yeah. So they said they've That's already awesome. gotten some orders for Australia Yep. and some of our Canadian listeners.
2: So that was super exciting. And one for Hopkinton, New Hampshire, I'm guessing. Yes. Hopefully more yes. than one. Yes. Oh, I'm
4: fully ordering. I do want to know, the way you've just described this bookstore and the owner of the bookstore, I feel like he also needs to be, I mean, listen, he can be s- slightly disguised, but I hope that he makes an appearance. He, he might
5: be in the first chapter. <laughs> uh, ha,
3: ha, ha. Way to go. Yes. That's the way but to say These your are book. all fictional people, of course. Yes. of course. Of
2: course, of course, of course. Loosely based. Okay, so should we go ahead and uh, actually do our first review?
5: Yeah, why
3: not?
2: Yeah. Our people who are listening to that podcast for the first time are like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> all right. Feel free to trim all of that. I'm yeah. rambling like crazy today. It's Three, fine, Laura. Two, <laughs> one. Leading off.
0: This is me. I lived transgender before, and I left everything to follow Jesus Christ. You believers? Yeah. Yeah. So, Father God... I just thank you for my sisters tonight, Lord, that I met. Fellow believers in you, Jesus.
2: For thousands of Christian teens struggling with their sexual identities, religious leaders offered a cure, in quotes, for homosexuality. It was called reparative or conversion therapy. Using a combination of abstinence, prayer, and pseudo-psychology, participants claimed they were no longer gay.
1: But we really believed that if you kept repeating it, if you kept claiming that God was changing you, that he would.
2: But the therapy was dangerous and destructive and had no effect on one's sexual orientation. And some of the leaders of the so-called, quote, ex-gay movement slowly realized it was detrimental to others and their own sexual identities.
6: Did that really go away? No, I just changed how, what my connections with people were. And I just avoided things. But did I really change?
2: The Netflix documentary Pray Away looks back at the early adopters of conversion therapy and the advocates who believed in its efficacy until they didn't. The film also follows an evangelical who renounces his trans identity and is organizing a political movement for those who identify, quote, as ex-gay. So we are going to be talking about plot points from the film Pray Away. So if you want to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes for thumbs up or thumbs down review.
3: Spoiler, conversion therapy doesn't work.
2: That's also true. We don't need to fast forward to that. That's, yes. And it's also very damaging. So, Janet, one of the things I was thinking when watching this documentary was that I, on the one hand— You know, I don't really get why anybody would decide it was a good idea to try to convert gay people to being not gay. But I do understand if you are a gay child or teenager and you are, you know, living in a community where all you know is that being defined as bad, as sinful, I do understand the appeal for a young person to be attracted to something that would make them perhaps— feel loved and feel accepted by their, you know, somewhat closed off community. Do you do you understand what I'm talking about?
4: I absolutely do. And I mean, I wasn't going to play the I'm a former Mormon card so quickly. But, you know, this is definitely something that I was exposed to a little bit when I was a teenager and I had to go to church with my mom. That was, you know, it was just not a religion that I could get on board for, although there are some really wonderful and warm people there. And certainly it was not okay to be gay when I was growing up. And there was absolutely the option of going to some sort of camp or school. or So there was something that you could do to try to pray the gay away. And being inside of that community, even just peripherally as I was, it feels good to be accepted it feels good to be embraced and if you have this kind of i don't want to say insidious but because a lot of it is truly well intentioned even if it's wrong this idea of like oh we feel for you we're not judge listen this is just you can get through this. You're going to get through this. This is just a problem that can be solved. God can help you. That can be very enticing to somebody who feels alienated. And that's one of the things that's so heartbreaking about it is just wanting to feel like you're accepted by your community. It just, ugh, it's awful.
2: Isn't it harder, though, Janet, to see it as not being insidious now in 2021 versus, say, in the 80s? Because like, we know now. Like, it's, I mean, we knew then, obviously, that you can't convert, but we also know now how unbelievable damaging this kind of program is. So, I mean, I think maybe in the 80s we could say, well-intentioned but insidious, and now we can just say insidious Fompers and insidious. And acceptable. <laughs> yeah. 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 I thought it was really interesting, Kevin, that the documentary focuses on this guy Jeffrey McCall, who was trans. Right, okay. Uh, perhaps is still trans. I mean, I'm not going to speak for him, but has decided now as an adult to not be trans anymore and has started his own movement of quote, ex queer people and, you know, standing outside of stores, asking people to pray with him. What do you make of the fact that this documentary, I think, with a lot of dignity, focused on him as a character?
3: Well, I think it's important because everybody else that we talk to and all of the narrative has to do with stuff going on in the past in sort of the heyday of uh, Pray the Gay Away, to make a rhyming slogan there. But the idea – like I thought, oh, well, no one does this anymore or it's very limited. And so the idea that there are still people who are living the ex-gay Life, I don't even really know how to label it. But as somebody who who has gone through the the conversion therapy and now is on the other side and saying and preaching the same gospel, the fact that that is still happening in twenty twenty one, I think, is enlightening. Although I I will say I'm glad they did not take a heavy hand with Jeffrey. I mean I think when we see him, we know by everything else that we're watching in the video and everything else we bring to the documentary already. We know that conversion therapy is not a great idea, right? And so they don't have to make him a villain. They just kind of show what he's doing. And that's a great example of showing, right, as, as opposed to telling. One thing I don't get, though, is his freedom march yeah. and the movement that he's gone. It's kind of left a little up in the air A little ambiguous about what that's all about. Hmm. Is he trying to, I don't know, a movement to accept ex-gay people in the church?
2: I thought that's what the whole point was. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to say we are a community. Um, I mean, one of the things that really struck me was when he got that phone call from the mother. And we hear him counseling her on the phone about her own son.
0: It's a strong spirit that wants to force you to call him a woman, and he's not. That wants you to bow down, and you're going to say yes, and you have to agree with what it says. Don't
2: do that. Laura, what do you think was going on there with that uh, march that Jeffrey was trying to do with all of his, quote, ex-gay community members? That was interesting, because you know, as
5: I was watching that particular part unfold, I wasn't quite sure. It was like... The street preacher sort of thing, but it's like when, when somebody like that comes at you, I, I wonder what their aim is. It's it's uh, you know, he had his sign and he was going around and he was just talking to, you know, totally random people in the street, like God saved me, and it's like he's out basically trying to gain disciples and gain followers and everything. But, you know, when it rose to the level of the march for the people like himself that felt like they had been saved and they wanted to, you know, then share that word. You know, that was during that period where I felt like we had so many different marches going back and forth in that particular area that you know, I kind of feel like it was just a phase where everybody was expressing themselves in that way and that was like the venue that people were using during that sort of time period in history. Hmm. What do you think, Janet?
4: Well, it is another one of these documentaries that I know you you all have talked about on the show before where there's no narration the footage sort of speaks for itself there's you know some Chirons at the end and and kind of scattered throughout but you are kind of left to wonder because nobody is necessarily holding your hand saying so here's this is this is the sort of mission statement of this freedom March this is and that is information that I did feel like I could have used at times in this documentary because it did move around so much and so I was sort of feeling like I was playing catch up a little bit particularly with stuff like that Because, you know, suddenly we would be at a march with him. And it's very interesting the moment that you look and say, oh, that just looks like a rally that I might go to in San Francisco of gay folks who I would consider to be like my community and friends. That's a a little bit of a reckoning moment because, you know, sometimes you have these ideas that if you see a party of people who are arguing in favor of something that you feel the exact opposite about, you're also going to see that reflected in how they dress, what they look like, what race they are, what age they are, all that. And it was a startling moment for me to go, I feel like I know these folks, like, what's happening? And for that reason and others, I never felt angry about what he was doing and what he was putting together. I just felt really sad because I feel like whatever is going on with his pain, my experience of it as an audience member, and to your point, Rebecca, I'm not going to speak for him, but it just felt like something else is broken, but you have projected it onto your trans identity or your queer identity, and it just breaks my heart because... I don't think that's what's going on. It's bigger than that. It's different than that. It's deeper than that. Sure, it can be tied in to a certain lifestyle, but you didn't see anybody saying, as a man, I was very happily married to a man and I had a wonderful life and great kids. And then all of a sudden I realized I couldn't live this sin anymore.
2: Exactly. Exactly. You only see people who were persecuted when they when they were, you know, who they were, or for people who had an experience that was, you know, not fulfilling.
4: Or drugs were tied in, or having to do sex work and maybe not wanting to do sex work, all that kind of exactly. stuff. It gets so muddled, I think.
2: You know, one of the really interesting as a, as a few, and we'll go through them. Um, people in this documentary is Julie Rogers. She was a young lesbian who came out, she lived in a really kind of idyllic family. She describes her parents as being very loving. She describes her church experience as being very positive. She joins, you know, this community, and then she ends up joining Exodus, which is this larger organization that the film really profiles. And she is seen as a future leader. She's giving testimony on stage. Uh, She's very positive in the moment. But, of course, we know that she is you know, no longer part of that movement. She's now out as a lesbian. She gets married in the documentary. We sort of see all that footage. I'm just curious, Kevin, what do you think about Julie? Because, you know, we'll get to the part about the changing of minds, but Mm -hmm. just being with somebody on their journey when they describe where they were in their life, you know, the propaganda that was used. You know, one of the things, for example, is you were definitely abused as a kid. Maybe you just don't remember it. What did you think of her recollections of that?
3: Well, she has two really great stories, and I think you hinted at what the second one will be about, The Reckoning. But I found her to be a really interesting character, very sympathetic. And she still seems today, like having gone through all of that and living her her life as she is today, her truest self— that she's still involved in the church and the things that she got, all the positive stuff that she got out of that, she's able to maintain and be a community member. And I like the fact that, like, they didn't make religion writ large the villain, mm. right? You know, there were aspects of it. But the message wasn't don't go to church. She's still going to church and, and, you know, interacting with folks. She had a really interesting story that was really heartbreaking, which she read from the manuscript of her book, talking about the first time she did self-harm.
4: For weeks, I engaged in a routine of applying neosporin to the wounds every morning and evening. We were safe in those moments, me and my body. I could roll up my shirt sleeve, expose my wounds, and be met with tenderness and compassion.
3: I don't know if it was intentional or not, but I recall that incident when she got married because in the video, she's wearing a wedding dress, a sleeveless wedding dress, and on her arm, you can see all the cut marks that she did from when she was younger. And sort of a callback to like, see how far she has come in her life from that place of pain to this moment where she's completely in love and it's, it's complete happiness. And it's that ought to be the goal to get out of that bad situation and to find who you are as yourself. So I think all the characters did that, but she did it in a very special way.
2: Hmm. Uh, Laura, I want to ask you about Yvette Cantu. She was the, quote, ex-lesbian spokesperson for the anti-gay movement. Huge involvement in the politics of the anti-gay movement, particularly during the Bush administration. She gives us insight into the messaging that was used and is still used when it comes to uh, the politics. By the way, it is genius and evil that this became a political issue because it developed so many talking points that are still used, have still been co-opted, that are just on their face wrong. But she tells us this. She tells us, it was my job to say, oh, if a man can marry a man, what's next? Can a man marry a dog? Like they, she, And what she said was, we always go to the scariest place to try to scare people. I was very interesting to me to hear sort of a political insider just talking about that lie and the reason why they told it. What, do you, what did you think about her?
5: Yeah, you know, it was interesting. As I was watching that, I was kind of drawing a lot of parallels to the messaging that comes out of cults, like religious cults, extremist groups like Scientology or something like that, in that, you know, you do have these very public spokespeople for the particular religion, and they're people that are recognizable because they're out there all the time. You know, obviously, in the other case, it's more celebrities— but it was interesting because, you know, you find yourself thinking, like, what would the actual story be behind some of these other groups if people were as forthcoming about the business side of recruiting people to their group as she was? You know, it was enlightening. But, you know, watching, I was glad, you know, when they were doing the flashbacks, I was like, I hope she's one of the ones that finally embraced their true selves. Because it was it was touch and go there with some of them for a while. And when, when you were seeing the older images, like the couple that they met at this, then they were then like the spokespeople. I was mean like, John and
2: Anne.
4: (laughs) And she stayed in, right? Yeah. She's still going strong. In her
2: cute little Talbot suits, as he described it. Yeah, she did not participate in the documentary.
5: (laughs) (laughs) He looked like so much more chill now. He's got like a little long hair.
2: He He looked like a
5: surfer to me.
2: He looked like a different person. I mean, that is another part of a couple that we spend time with, John. I'm curious, what do you think, Janet, hearing someone like Yvette or someone like John? Because John was also a very prominent Media savvy on every talk show spokesperson for this movement and part of the political arm of it, like really driving home the message that being gay is a, quote, choice, which we know is not true now. And to see him today telling the story, but to see those clips and the same with Yvette. How did you feel when you watched people now who are in the real world and know the truth talking about their participation in this? I mean, those were tough. Those
4: were tough, especially because, and again, I, I feel a lot of compassion and I don't want to be overly judgmental because, again, I everybody comes from a different place and there are so many reasons why you sort of end up going down the road you go down. But it's really hard to, after the fact, seeing the amount of influence that those two had to then hear them later say, and I always knew it was a lie mm. or I felt deep down that it wasn't true, to push past that. And I'm sure pushing past that aggressively in response to that fear in yourself, but the fact that your response to your own doubt is to work harder and harder to make everyone sure that being gay is wrong, that's a really tough thing. And and, and they clearly both carry that with them in a really deep, intense way. And it really seems like they're both sort of have accepted the fact that they're going to have to live with the weight of that and that they wish they could do more perhaps to, you know, but they can't change it. They can't change what they did, but it was rough. That was, those were hard things to see in here.
3: This documentary has some parallels in my mind to the Scientology. Yes. Things from Leah Remini that it's an apostolate story that you've got the person from the inside who is now, uh, you know, changed their ways and is talking about what happened and if I have two criticisms of the documentary, one is that it's, I think this pace is very slow. There was never a point where I was like, oh, well, tell me what happened next. It just didn't sort of have that kind of vibe. But the other thing is it's very sympathetic to all these folks that had been in the, it's called the ex-gay movement, had been in this movement and had been the leaders and preached it and that are now out and realize the error of their ways. But I don't think the filmmakers ever really confronted them on that and challenged them on their contrition, because it seems like, well, you know, the the resolution is, well, then I realized I was wrong and I came out. Except for there was this one guy who talked about the blood on his hands after Prop 8.
1: He said, what do you think about the blood on your hands? I said, right now, all I know is I'm afraid to look down at my hands.
3: Besides that, we do see like people being kind of troubled about that, but there are people who are not going to be satisfied with the way that they, they were portrayed at all because it's very personal to a lot of folks. But I just felt like they could have done some more to really challenge them on – those views and what their responsibility is.
2: Don't you think that would entail, though, having the questioner be in the documentary, which is just not the style of how this was made? Like, how do you do that if you don't have the producer on film saying, why are you saying this now when you said this? You know what I mean? Like that that would change the Well, you the can format. cut the
3: question out or you can leave that one question in because yeah. it's an important question. But yeah. I, I don't know. I just felt like – I don't know about you guys. I
2: It was I, a choice. I mean, I, they made that I choice. Really,
3: yes. Yeah. I felt – Sympathetic to all of them. I felt like they were perpetrators, but they were also victims of this whole scam scheme. But I don't know, guys, if you feel like they had their comeuppance that they deserved. Hmm.
4: I think the closest we got was in that moment, uh, the whole scene where we saw folks who had left Exodus and the remaining members, at which time Julie was still apart. That confrontation, like in a basement with a therapist or whatever that they filmed, that felt like the closest to what you were talking about missing, Kevin, right? Seeing the faces, just the sort of stricken faces and having to be reminded like, oh, right, right, right. At this point, Julie is still in. Mm -hmm. She's our, our Julie is still their Julie. And... And then hearing more from the I can't remember if it was the founder of or the ex VP of, but one of them definitely said that was horrible. I was horrified. I knew at that moment that we had done irreparable damage. Turn straight
3: because turn the straight, survivors we were feelings looking feelings at us right in the face. And we could no longer excuse it away, we could no longer deny it. And that Exodus could no longer continue to promote The idea of change because that was a
4: lie. That was kind of the big moment for me. But you're right. It wasn't like splashed across the screen or anything. It was pretty subtle.
2: Laura Bricker, can you imagine in 2021 a situation where any kind of group with political power or a point of view that is as strident as the point of view as Exodus was sitting with victims of their point of view and saying, you know what? You're right. I changed my mind. I'm going to disband my organization. Could you even imagine that happening in 2021? No, which
5: is unfortunate because, I mean, 2021's a rough year, and I, I don't want to go down that road. But, I mean, that was something, regardless of how you feel about what happened when Exodus was in full swing. And it's crazy to me to think that they were there for 40 years. I'm like, 40 freaking years? I mean, that's a long time. Regardless of what happened during that, the fact that they disbanded, they left, and now, you know, are all doing their own individual parts to sort of try to help with what they were responsible for perpetrating. You mm. know what I mean? So I, I think, yeah, it wouldn't happen today. And, and that's too bad because I think, you know, we've gotten past the point of being able to maybe get some perspective sometimes in
2: situations. Kevin, what do you think? Can you even imagine that happening now? No.
5: No.
3: <laughs> you say, you- oh. That's a good point. Maybe I'll just disband my my business and my my not only my way of life, but my everything that I've done for the past couple of years, you know, a couple of decades I'm going to change that because it's wrong. I'm going to disband my
2: gun uh, lobby I'm going to disband tabac- my pro-marijuana lobby or I'm going to disband anything. Like I'm going to stop growing tobacco and grow textile material <laughs> out
3: <here. laughs>
0: Well, maybe it says
4: something about how like precipitously close they were on the edge, like that they were just always hovering on that razor's edge of maybe this isn't real. Maybe this isn't right. You know what I mean? In a way that today we just don't – nobody's hovering there anymore. Everybody's, like, firmly planted. I actually
2: have a theory about that. Yeah. I think they thought they weren't going to win. So I think the reason Prop 8 was a a watershed moment for these uh, anti-gay organizations was because I don't think they thought it was going to win. And I think they thought it was a safe political argument to sort of, like, rally right-wing people around because they were like, it's not going to win. So, like, we can make this point and it will help us with the presidential election or help us in these bigger spheres. I don't think that's... I think it's just like Brexit. You know how, like, you talk to British people, like, I voted for it because I was pissed, but I didn't think it was going to actually pass. (laughs) Um, I mean, I, I actually wonder that. Well,
3: I think in this meeting, I think the reason that... It worked was because the people on the other side were also gay. Right. They were closeted and they they were not coming to terms with it. When you have that meeting with the folks from Big Tobacco, the tobacco executives all don't have lung cancer, too. Right.
4: Yeah. They're not about to quit their jobs because they just need to have that one on one ratio of like, I'm looking in a mirror. Wait a minute. That's
2: me over there. I got (laughs) to quit now. It did really strike me. And I don't know if this struck you guys that uh, Julie talked about going to the Exodus like retreats. Yeah. And it being so fun because you got to be around a bunch of queer kids. And I'm like, yes, yeah. of course that was fun, because even though you had all these stupid rules about how you couldn't be alone with someone of the same sex or whatever the stupid so rules were. let's all play were. football.
3: It'll be manly.
2: <laughs> right. But, like, that almost was, like, counter to Exodus's um, goal, oh, yeah. which, by the way, it showed all these young people, I'm not alone. There's lots of gays. That's, That's all they want <laughs> is to belong to a group, whatever it is.
4: You Have know? you guys uh, seen But I'm a Cheerleader?
2: No, I don't
3: know. You should, oh, no. You've got to see it. Yeah. Okay.
4: So this is this is the movie that you if you if you watch this and you're bummed out and you need a laugh or you want to see the very black comedy kind of satire version of this, there's a great movie directed by Jamie Babbitt. It stars Natasha Leone, uh Melanie Linsky, her. Clea Duval, and it, it takes place at a pray away the gay camp. And it is so funny. And very dark and is absolutely what Julie described. It's full of people who are supposedly not attracted to each other, who are clearly... You know, you just see everything that's happening as, oh, oh, you guys are, oh, you're wrestling. OK, they're having you you're having a wrestle. You're enjoying this very much. Like, it's great. It's a great movie and it's really funny and, and I recommend it very highly.
2: I do love the idea that you can just make boys play football, make girls put on makeup and that will be that. Yeah,
3: like, <laughs> Genius. My job here is done.
2: Laura, <laughs> yeah. I hear you have a uh, like one step away, like connection to Exodus in some weird freaking way.
5: Oh yeah so I was talking to my friend this afternoon who's a minister and she's a hospice chaplain and she was she used to be a church hopper she used to like to go to all the churches like kind of like a Fun, like people who bar hopped, she church hopped. Anyway, yes. <laughs> um, I can't, no wait, it's not the same. It's yeah, not. Do it. <laughs> it is, it is.
3: Because she would drink the wine with the priest. Yeah, you told us the story. Yeah.
5: Anyway, but so she, in like the 90s in Portsmouth, which is a community pretty close to where I live here over on the seacoast of New Hampshire, she went to this church there where there was somebody that was there speaking from Exodus, trying to like recruit people. To join them. And then, you know, she told me that she had somebody that was somehow connected, somebody that she knew, and it was a woman that had left her husband and then, you know, was like, you know what, I've been repressing it in this church and I'm actually a lesbian. And she was talking about how this particular church really sort of shunned her in a way that she actually didn't go through with their little program Hmm. which was interesting but she recalled like that it was a really big deal and you know here we are like it's interesting you know to think 25 years ago like something like that that they are like recruiting in an area where i live which is a pretty liberal progressive area that this was just like a show that traveled around and and tried to get
2: people to join it was i was i was just stunned i think that
3: you gotta fish where the fish are laura
2: This is why I love the Zoomer so much, because they're basically training parents to not be scared when their kids are Mm, queer. It's the best. It's totally the best. All right. I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out the documentary Pray Away? It's available on Netflix. I'm going to go around the horn. Laura Bricker, what do you say? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Pray Away on Netflix?
5: I'm going to go with thumbs up. It's not enthusiastic thumbs up just because I think at points it's got like a little bit slow. But overall, I felt like, you know, and I've told a couple people this today as I was talking about what are we reviewing this week. This was a hard watch. It's like something you're watching it that kind of just hits you in the gut when you see the psychological mental health damage that was done to people going through this conversion therapy program and these people doing self-harm and feeling suicidal. I mean, it's intense, but I think it was an important watch. And so, you know, I think there was times, I I don't know how you would pick up the pace in something like this, but overall, I would say it's an hour and a half. It might be something you want to even sit down and watch with your teenagers.
2: Janet Varney, your first ever chance to review something on Crime Writers On. What do you say? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Pray Away on Netflix.
4: I got to go thumbs sideways. I'm totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. I just thought it would be really funny if I insisted on going thumbs sideways on everything. <laughs> Three, two, no, I'm a th- one. I'm pro sideways. <laughs> I No, I'm definitely a thumbs up. I'm a thumbs up, but I think do it as a double feature. I'm thumbs up, watch the documentary, and then do yourself a favor and watch But I'm a Cheerleader, <laughs> and you will feel buoyed again and it will sort of, you know, cleanse your palate, but yet it will still be about the same thing. Um, I think that's maybe what you need is is a little bit of that balance. And I totally agree with Laura about pacing. I think it was there was some stuff that maybe could have been snipped out and we would have gotten uh, still all of the important stuff that we needed to see.
2: Kevin Flynn.
3: Yeah, I'm a thumbs up, but not a, a really big thumbs up. I think it's an important topic. I just think that the documentary itself moves kind of slow. I think it's at its best when it's looking at the individuals involved. I mean, we already kind of know a, the essence of of conversion therapy and that it's bad. So it's not like Tiger King where, oh, my goodness, look at all this stuff is going on. I mean, we already kind of knew that. But the tale is important and and the message is important. And the idea that we still see some folks who are currently sort of in that that circle with that belief that they can pray away the gay, Hmm. that that works for them, I think is still important. So in any event, uh, it's not perfect, but it is important. Thumbs up.
2: Yeah, thumbs up for me, too. I actually have an idea of how this could have been perfect. How? I think this is the rare time where I'm going to say it could have been more parts and not just one part. There could have been an, ep- an episode about Julie. There could have been an episode about Jeffrey. You see it as a series Jeffrey. and to, yeah. I see, I see it as like a four-part thing because... Rather
4: than jumping around. Yeah,
2: we really do have distinct stories here. We have the political story. We have the very personal story with Julie. We have the story with Jeffrey, which is freaking fascinating. And then we have the corporate story with the Exodus folks, right? I think that it could have been... Longer and explore each of those individually. That was the one thing that I would ask the documentarians for. And by the way, I did interview them for the Netflix podcast. You can't make this up. And I did not ask them for that. But I I really liked the documentary because it was um, disturbing, but in a way that it should be. So I have to give it a thumbs up. I do think it's something that people should watch. And I do think that if you have a a kid that is like, I don't know, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and is just in the world being a person, that it is worth having them watch this with you. So thumbs up for me for Away. Disney Plus
6: and Hulu are better together in the Disney bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone, in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details.
0: Walmart Plus members save on Meeting Up With Friends.
1: Today's podcast is sponsored by June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game which transports you into a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance set in the glamorous 1920s. You'll play as June Parker as she embarks on a quest to solve her sister's murder. But that's not all. You'll let your imagination run wild as you get to customize your own luxurious estate island with expensive gardens and beautiful buildings. So, can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android.
2: So, Kevin, here we are in the business section business of the podcast. Section. What have we got going on in the business section today?
3: Well, over on Patreon, we have the Crime Writers on After Show coming up. We're going to talk about, Rebecca, our trip to uh, Nashville. Mm-hmm. A lot of things happened there. And then, in uh, honor of Janet Varney being on our show... She does on the JV club. She talks to uh, folks about their high school days, their teenage days. Yes, and so we're going to talk. Humiliating. Yes, we're going to talk about our teenage unrequited love. Ooh,
2: is Lara's a horse?
3: Could be.
5: You guys, I actually have a really current story about Canna this. Oh. Wait.
3: All right. Is
4: anyone surprised that Lara has a great story nope.
5: that
3: no. happens to
4: just totally tie in? She always oh,
5: does. Oh, it's interesting. And, All it's right. somehow, and
3: it has something to do with scones or somebody in Exeter, I'm or sure. Of course. Yeah, if you can't get enough of uh, Janet Varney on Patreon, you should download the latest Toby Balls Deep Dive Book Club. Toby and Janet and Sarah D. Bunting talk about Last Call by Elon Green. Nice. And uh, Jana, you were, uh, I remember, you, well, it is not a thumbs up, but you recommended the book. You thought it uh, told a great story without getting into too many true crime tropes.
4: It was great. I really liked it. And I, of course, listened to the audiobook. There's a great interview with Elon at the end, which is also very illuminating. And I'm a big fan. It was a great book.
3: On the new Leave it to Bricker, it's the boobs and wine episode. Sounds on
2: brand. Yeah. Jugs and
3: <laughs> jugs. Uh,
2: that's sexist, Ken. Laura,
3: La- Laura drinks a bunch of wine with her friends and talks about uh, all things uh, boobs, not her own, but other no. people's famous boobs that she has been um, privy to. Uh,
5: nice. And I also talked about my plans for my birthday party. Okay. Oh, um, yeah.
3: Wait
2: a minute. Are we invited to that? No. Well, yeah, it's axe throwing.
3: Oh, okay. It has nothing you to do with what? boobs, though.
2: <laughs> Sounds awesome. What could possibly go wrong? Possibly go wrong.
3: (laughs) Drinking and throwing axes.
2: What else is going on on our Patreon, Kevin? Oh, well, we're going to have
3: a live episode of Married with Podcast. We're going to be recording it on uh, Wednesday, August 25th, Mm -hmm. 8 p.m. So if you're on Patreon, you can join the Crowdcast video. So jump on and ask your questions or give advice. You can submit your questions ahead of time. That podcast itself will be out later, but it's always fun to get people involved. It's
2: really, really fun. And there's one other thing I'm encouraging you to talk about on this show, Kevin. What is that?
3: Our other podcast, These Are Their Stories. We never
2: talk about your podcast on this show, and it's so stupid that we don't do that. It's free. You can just get it.
3: (laughs) The latest episode of These Are Their Stories, we're talking about the SVU episode, Babes. That's the one with the pregnancy pact.
2: Yeah, it is.
3: And our guest happens to be one, Henry Lavoie.
2: And he's a genius. Yeah. It's super fun.
3: You know, know, I see a theme here. A lot of people that are on our shows that we're not paying.
2: Yeah, nepotism, too.
3: Yeah, by the way, Janet, I hate to break it to you.
2: But... <laughs> What's that now? She didn't Ooh, pay to be time. on her <laughs> bracket. Look at the time! I will say, and I said it on the show How about before, a Sitco
3: gas card? If,
2: if you want, like, um, a gateway drug to Janet's amazing podcast at JV Club with Janet yeah. Varney, listen to the episode with Kevin Flynn on it. It's oh. honestly, Janet, it's one of my favorite episodes. He was so good. He was so good, but on so, your so show. Were
4: you, and Laura, I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you. <laughs> oh. My boys of summer series in soon I didn't want right. to ask Toby because I genuinely felt like he would be too uncomfortable. It just seemed like he would be like oh, I don't need to talk about myself Yeah,
2: Toby
3: you gotta sing Boys of Summer at the end of the episode
2: yeah. he'd be He'll out. be like Oh, oh you, what's that song? I never heard that song before uh, Remember he didn't even know what Game of Thrones was oh, Jesus. <laughs> That's
4: a classic Toby
2: Kevin do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week?
3: Our Patreon patron saints are Christy Crimmins and Erica Sealing.
2: Bless you. Bless you guys. And Kevin, is that it for the business section? That's going to do it for the business section. All right, let's fade that music down. Moving on. Which hotel were you at?
1: White Lotus.
2: White Lotus?
4: Our guide told us someone was killed there.
1: Bodies on our plane.
2: On our plane to Honolulu?
1: Yeah, they're about to load the body on our plane.
2: Who was killed during their stay at the luxurious White Lotus Resort? Rich boy Shane's newlywed wife Rachel is not at his side after her honeymoon realization that she's a trophy wife. There's Tanya McQuad, a rich but scattered woman who's traveled to Hawaii to spread her mother's ashes. And there's Nicole and Mark Mossbacher, a wealthy couple who've taken their kids and one of their friends to the island for a high-end family vacation.
0: Your brother is
6: not sleeping in the
0: kitchen.
2: Why not?
6: Well, because it's a galley kitchen. It's tiny. And we've got this whole beautiful room. Mom, he's doing fine in there. Look, he's stimming. He can entertain himself for hours with just his own hand gestures. He's fine in the kitchen. There to welcome them all is Armand,
2: the manager, who smiles his way through their entitled requests, even as his personal and professional life slides into increasing darkness.
0: And the goal is to create for the guests an overall impression of vagueness that can be very satisfying where they get everything they want but they don't even know what they want or what day it is or where they are or who we are or what the fuck is going on
2: The HBO series The White Lotus follows these characters through their series of disappointments at an exclusive Hawaiian resort. Beneath the comedy, there is a simmering tension and a commentary on the tedium of wealth, the indifference of privilege, and the specter of death. We are going to be talking about plot points for The White Lotus. So to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs-up or thumbs-down reviews. Now, Laura, I didn't know what this show was going to be when I saw the previews or the trailers. And first few minutes of the first episode, we find out someone gets killed. Uh, what do you think of that whole premise here? Because I didn't even know we were going to be able to talk about this thing on our podcast. And yet here we are.
5: Oh, I'm excited we're talking about this. This is like my favorite thing of the summer. So, yeah, I mean, I'm watching it. I have no idea what it's about. I'm like, oh, what's this? White Lotus. I saw uh, Nanita was like, oh, this is interesting. So uh, that's why I started watching and you know right away i'm like okay so this isn't a who done it it's a who died it like and cuz we know like somebody's dead it's a who died it but the problem is as i'm watching this i'm like i freaking hate all of these people mm. who do i hate the most and i'm like oh my god this is bringing out like a side in me that i don't like cuz i'm like I want to kill some of these people. Like, particularly, I really want to kill Shane. Hmm. I think he deserves to die the most. Hmm. But then I met his mother, Molly Shannon, and I was like, she also deserves to die. So I spent a lot of time and I was like getting, it you know, a lot of rage, like, your skill uh, emotions coming out during this series.
2: I will say one thing about Molly Shannon's character on this White Lotus thing. And this is a tangent. If someone told me, I'm sorry, this is going to make me sound horrible. If someone told me, you never have to work again, I'd be like, yeah, I don't. I do not have to work <laughs> Dude, again. Dude,
4: that's the whole point. There's 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 supposed to be stuff like that in this show that you're like, huh, should I be uncomfortable that I can relate
2: to that? Or like, exactly. do I need to look at that? Or, you know. Exactly. Well, Janet, that reminds me the sort of discomfort of it. I think it's set up for us, the discomfort in the way the show is shot. It's very interesting to me that this very location porn, very specific setting for the show, which is filmed at the Four Seasons in Maui, uh, is shot with this very yellow, very sort of discomforting lens. What did you think of just the like aesthetic presentation of, of this whole series?
4: I thought it was really impressive. I thought the immersion into the water where you sort of feel like you're drowning or suffocating in this beautiful place and then sort of popping back up into paradise was a really nice way of reminding us how uncomfortable and sort of smothered by luxury in a way we were in addition to all of the personalities and all of the sort of unpopular opinions or controversial things that the characters were not afraid to say, perhaps because they felt like they could if they felt like they're entitled to that, just like everything else. I mean, I, I really liked this. That doesn't mean that I feel good about how much I liked it, mm. but I don't think I'm supposed to. I don't think I'm supposed to feel great about any of this. I think Mike White didn't want anybody to walk away going, that was awesome. Like he wanted <laughs> us to walk away like, oh, I need to take a shower. I got some stuff to work out on my own here. Uh
2: by the way, shout out to Mike White. He wrote episodes of Freaks and Geeks. He wrote episodes of Dawson's Creek. He was a contestant, as my ex-work wife Maureen told me, on The Amazing Race with his dad. I
3: think he was on Survivor as well. Yeah.
2: Yes, and he also he has a very interesting backstory that I think probably informed like a lot of the what's tribe
3: is spoken. Rebecca, going
2: on here, <laughs> Kevin, were you surprised? I mean, this thing starts very much in a quirky way. It yeah. seems very fun and whimsical. It reminds me of one of our favorite filmmakers, and then it gets very dark very quickly.
3: Right. I mean, like you guys said, I didn't know what I was getting into. I saw the promos, and it's like, oh, this looks like kind of a Wes Anderson, you know, what was that? Hotel?
2: Oh, the, Grand, thing. Budapest the Grand Budapest yeah. Right,
3: it looks kind of weird, and and for a lot of the series, nothing like really happens. It's a little Seinfeld-esque. The people are mildly unpleasant. You do have this death lingering over the story, so there's some tension with that. And it has this sort of, in the first episode, this wacky storyline where a new employee, her water breaks. Nobody knows she's pregnant, and she goes and she gives birth, and then she's gone and never comes back. I just thought she was chunky. You know, the poor woman was having a baby, and I, I didn't even notice That episode one, the whole zeitgeist of that episode is not at all what we get at the end. And I think we get into it and we start to understand their characters, and it's mild, it's, you know, it's comedic. And by the time we get to the end and the heavier stuff, I mean, we're like already all in. And I don't think you could have started that way. With this, like, well, it's going to be, you know, a heavier discussion about privilege and about colonialism and about the leisure class and things like that. It just starts off like with, oh, look, it's Steve Zahn's testicles. Oh, and, yeah. I forgot about uh, that. You know? <laughs>
2: <laughs> and, and by the way, in the opening yeah. credits, his name is next to those, like, hanging apricots, that look yeah, just but, yeah. like testicles. Yeah. It's Beautiful. pretty incredible. Yeah, But it goes, but it, but it builds and
3: it goes into someplace else really smart really provocative, but it doesn't start that way.
2: Now, Laura, you think that the staff that we see, I think in episode one, probably we see the most just staff members like doing their things. at mm-hmm. sort of the entry into the hotel. And they're kind of in the background except for Armand for much of the show. But you sent me a note. You think that, that it's really important that we pay attention to them, right?
5: Yeah. I felt like as I was watching this, there was definitely like this sort of like Downton Abbey, upstairs, downstairs sort of theme running through it where we have the ultra wealthy and the people that are looking after them. And the ultra-wealthy are completely unaware of the people that are, you know, making sure that their lives are staying happy and nice to the point where, yeah, this woman gives birth and, like, nobody even, like, we never even see her again. So, as I'm watching this, you know, I'm looking at the character of Armand, who's the manager, and we've got the character of Belinda, who's the spa manager, and I'm thinking of, like, Down Abbey, and I'm thinking of Carson and Mrs. Hughes, and how they are, like, the most senior members of the team that is serving these uber-wealthy people. And, you know watching what they go through. We got Belinda, the spa manager, who seems very sincere. She, I think she's like the most likable character in this show. Oh, like, a yeah. 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 lot. <laughs> she's definitely the character that at the end you're like, okay, all these people are freaking bonkers or crazy or warped or twisted, except for Belinda, who I just felt a lot of sympathy for. You know, so I think that sort of dynamic in a place that's like, paradise, basically. And I thought it was interesting, obviously, because of COVID, they were like, hey, sweet, what can we do on one location? And that that was how this came about. But the actual location in Hawaii, where there are, you know, some historical undertones in terms of the dynamics between, like we've talked about when we, um, what was that podcast we reviewed like three or four years ago? Offshore.
3: Offshore, that's it.
5: So when we reviewed Offshore and we heard about this sort of dynamic between, like, you know, the white people and the natives, and it was like what they call the Mm howlies and the reason behind that and the backstory. So, again, it's sort of this subtle commentary on that in the context of Paradise, where it's satirical and it's funny and it's snarky, but actually you're like sitting upon this area where there's a lot of... Stolen land. Lara, it's stolen land. <laughs> well, I was trying to, you know, so you're, you're basically... So there was a lot of that within it. And then the music. Can we talk about the music?
2: Yeah, we can talk about the music. You love the music.
5: I think the music brought this to like a whole new level. I, I feel like the music... I can't get it out of my head, but it added like this whole kind of like do-do-do-do, whatever the little as this was unfolding.
2: So one of the things I kept thinking about, Janet, is there's is a lot of talk about how this show is about privilege. I think it's also very much on its face about whiteness. And different sort of brands of archetypes of oppressive whiteness. And there's, I think, no character where that's better done in a way that's more cutting and more pointed than Nicole Mossbacher, the character played by Connie Britton, who, first of all, is just she makes everything she does resplendent and amazing because she's Connie Britton. But there's an incredible scene where she meets Rachel, the quote-unquote journalist—we'll talk about that in a minute—and is very kind and very warm to this attractive younger woman, seeing herself as this girl boss who can be inspirational. And then as soon as she finds out that Rachel wrote this one article about her, she turns super cutting. It said you were kicking the corporate world's ass.
6: No, you made it out like I got my promotion because of optics. She rode the Me Too wave bullshit like that. Well, I couldn't not mention the lawsuits. But you didn't have to make me come across like I was some kind of Machiavellian Gorgon using the victimization of the other women in my company just to further my own craven ambitions.
4: Connie... Britain is so lovable, and I think you can see the casting choice almost across the board. I feel like it, there's very intentional casting to cast people that, quote-unquote, everyone loves mm. in these really difficult characters. Molly Shannon being a great example of that. Molly Shannon is one of the most delightful, sweet, funny human beings, and I feel like that comes through no matter what she's doing, including that role, and the fact that she was able to still, at times, be completely adorable as that woman was a testament to the casting and i think that the same with steve zahn same with connie i mean not every single person across the board but um murray bartlett i love so much oh my god so great on looking i just loved him on looking and he's so it's what an amazing role for him to get to do in this but you have these people who you know you're used to liking jennifer coolidge you're used to thinking oh i love this person and so that sneaks in and gets under your skin and then you have to kind of push past that when you're listening to them say things that just aren't right. Um, Her character, that was a really interesting conversation because, if I remember correctly, what she has really kind of chomped down on is this idea that she feels like the puff piece made it seem like she only got her job because she's a woman. And so when you hear it on its face, you go, well, that does make sense. I mean, if it really was like that, you could see how that would be upsetting to someone because they would say, I worked so hard to get this. Please don't make it seem like it was handed to me as some sort of affirmative action type thing. But the closer you listen to it, the more you're like, oh, you're a shark. Like, you're really okay. And You also you see her, see by the that. way,
2: arranging her hotel room so she'll have a better Zoom background. <laughs> oh, for
4: sure. I mean, she's wildly insecure. <laughs> wildly, wildly insecure. Hanging on by a thread, but it's a very strong thread. And she's got a really solid game face, which tells you that at some point, you can probably expect her to have some sort of a meltdown. But even the meltdown that she has is, like, very controlled. You know? She's like really well-spoken, whether you agree with her or not, as she freaks out at her family. So she's an unsettling character, and there's so much about her I cannot relate to because I have the worst game face and I'm super <laughs> emotional at all times and I could never head a company like that because my heart couldn't take it for any number of reasons. Um, so it was a really interesting character.
2: I really think the family is built in a very interesting way. In and oh yeah, On the one hand, relatable way, where you have like the entitled older sister and then you have the younger son who's addicted to screens and then you have the sort of like husband who feels very second place you know he's a very successful wife and then we find out he isn't it's all very sort of stereotypical yeah of like rich white people in many ways and Kevin I know that you found of all the likableness of some of these characters I think you found people within this family to be the least likable as you watch the show
3: not to you know single anybody out, but I did not like. I guess I'm not supposed to like anybody. I just Olivia was the, the daughter and her friend the, the sort of Paula. Paula the the actual the meanness I, the meanness they were just mean was a turn off. Whereas everybody else is you're right. You want to try to like them, but then like they start doing things where you're like mm, I don't I don't know about that. Look, I you know it's a great performance by the actress Sydney Sweeney and uh, Brittany O'Grady. And they sort of become more fully fleshed characters at the end. But there are other characters that I'd love to talk more about.
2: Well, I want to talk about Armand. Um, right. I don't know if uh, Lara will agree with me or not. I really loved Armand. I did not. I, did too. I, I was very upset. I read this uh, article today, which was like all the characters ranked from like best, like nicest to meanest. Mm-hmm. And they had Armand as. Number one, and I was like, What the fuck? Nicest or are meanest? Oh, freaking shame. What? Shame didn't take a
3: shit in somebody's suitcase. <sighs>
2: yes, this is why listicles don't work. Armand was a person who is in a denigrating job. So
3: you you sympathize, you oh empathize, you identify God. with Armand. Okay. I
2: worked retail for 10 years. Of course, I empathize with Armand. He is the is fo- crap in someone's back. O- the opening scene, though, where he talks about what you need to do. <laughs> To placate the customers at this hotel is one of my favorite scenes in the series. That scene where he talks about it. It was perfect. And this sort of being tipped over the edge by someone like Shane who plays the same game from the other side. I mean, that's what I saw there. Armand is always playing a game. So does Shane. You got to root for the underdog who's Armand. He's like the service mm-hmm. worker, right? Yeah. I don't know. I loved him. I don't think he's mean. Laura, you're going to back me up on that or not? Yeah, no, I loved
5: Armand. And going back to the who did it, who dies type uh, discussion from earlier, he was not the person that I thought was going to die. But then I was like, well, I mean, after he had the best dinner service of his career, I mean, what else could he really accomplish besides getting stabbed in a hotel room after pooping in somebody's suitcase? <laughs> I mean, honestly, there Which we was all nowhere... Saw
2: There was nowhere to go after the best dinner service, and I've never seen someone poop on camera on HBO before. Has anyone else? Yeah, no. I
5: think there was some special
3: effects there, but
5: uh. (laughs) I don't know. Um, So, uh, you know, it was it was sort of like at first I was like, oh, that sucks. That this poor guy has had all this shitty stuff. He's been treated horribly, and now he's dead. And I was like, well, actually, he went out with a bang. He's also an addict.
2: You know, he has a substance uh, misuse issue, and it's incredibly sad. I mean. I saw later. He really should Janet. be
3: constipated, actually, if you well, want
2: to be probably. accurate
3: about the opioid use.
2: <laughs> well, he wasn't just using opioids. Oh, he was that's using right. All yeah. of it.
3: Yeah, I was using everything.
2: I will say, um, one of my other favorite scenes in the show, Janet, was the scene where the two teenage girls were lamenting that one of them forgot to bring their uh, drugs. And then they all of a sudden have the whole thing where it's like, oh, I did bring weed. Oh,
6: shit. I have Addies if you want to be skinny tweakers. I don't like taking them, though, because then I can't sleep and I get all jittery. Oh, well, I've got Ambien, uh, Xanax, and a few Klonopin. But we can't use it all because I need them for my panic attacks. Holy shit.
4: I totally forgot that I stashed some ketamine in here, Paula. (laughs) I'm so stacked.
2: I thought that was just really incredible. Setting up Armand's, of course, later downfall. What did you think of the Armand drugs, Armandness of the whole thing?
4: Oh, it was so hard because I agree with you. I found him to be so lovable and I felt his pain and that feeling, again, of that trapped in paradise concept where he is in paradise and that paradise is his hell. And the fact that he cannot leave. I mean, he's the guy, which... By the way, I don't know how that hotel. Fun- I mean, it's got to be a small hotel in terms of like how it was written, because mm-hmm. I don't know that there is ever he does like everything. A ho- yeah. And the four seasons that he's the concierge, serves wine, serves dinner, gives people recommendations, hooks people up with this like he's doing everything. And that's crazy. Um, but the fact that he is tempted in that way and is trapped in this situation it's you just feel for him and you kind of know where it's going and I sort of did think he was going to be the one who died especially because they said oh we heard one of the guests died yep. and I was like no Mike White's screwing with us it's going to end up being Armand because he's the last person we'll think because we're supposed to think it's that by the way I I read a really interesting interview with Mike White in, in Vulture and he fully owned he was like yeah sometimes it's hard for people to stick with my shows so kind of as a joke I just decided to Put a dead body in the beginning to see if it made people stick around. <laughs> so I saw like that. It worked. Completely intentional. Yes. A little bit of a fuck you, like you, you. know. You know what? I'll give you a reason to watch my show. You want to watch right. my show? I'm going to put a dead
2: body in there. You're going to wonder who it is. Now people you got to stick like with me. People like murder. People love it. Absolutely. Absolutely. It worked. So, um, Kevin, we have to talk about our friend Shane. Thoughts?
3: Well, I won't call him the epitome of privilege, but I think you I'm, I'm going to rank what, him what number is two.
6: Look, well, it ends
2: up.
3: After we have this show that starts off with a woman giving birth, uh, you know, her water breaking in the lobby and stuff, that funny thing ends up being a very smart and provocative statement about privilege. And all of the characters here, all, I mean, obviously, they're rich people that can afford an expensive resort vacation. So by their nature, they're going to be people of privilege. But it's a great character study in all the many ways that they are. So Shane is... A petulant child. He's a baby man. He's a baby man who cannot get over the fact that he got the wrong room. Even By though it's the way, better. Yeah. I t- The pineapple suite ain't shit. Yeah. It's brown and, you know, plunge pool. It doesn't fuck have that. an
5: ocean view. Ocean
3: view. I'll take the palm trump's suite. Thank you. Pl-
2: pl- ocean view trumps plunge pool, right. period. And we
3: see Rachel come in as a person not of privilege who's being thrust into this world and is suddenly, oh, I don't know if I want to live in this golden Jail with the open door. And in the end, she decides, yeah, okay, I'm miserable but I'll take the security of your money.
2: What's her privilege? You know what it is? What? That she's pretty.
3: Okay, and she's pretty. That's
2: her privilege. And that gets pointed out over and over and over again. The teenage girls see her in her bathing suit. They're like, oh, shit. They're dismissing her until they see her body. The first thing Connie Britton says to her is you are beautiful. The thing her mother-in-law says to her is that he loves you because you're beautiful. That is her privilege, and she has a choice. She can either be a pretty, shitty journalist... Right Or a pretty woman who gets to get a four-hour facial right. in well, the morning.
3: Yeah, and of course, also, Shane gets away with everything. This the rich guy can literally kill somebody and yep. get on an Get airplane. a handshake from the cops. Right. Tanya uses all of her money to draw in Belinda, the employee. And in the end, she does acknowledge the transactional nature of her relationships. But she still has the privilege to walk away and crush Belinda's dreams. And Mark and Nicole, their solution to Quinn, the son, his desire to, like— Get out of the life and go back to nature is like, no, we can just buy a boat and buy Mm -hmm. a lake house and buy those things for you. And I but I have to put Quinn at number one as far as the privilege, the guy who at the end runs away to go literally paddle off to Fiji. He's doing it quite literally and symbolically on the back of a bunch of Hawaiian natives. Mm. Right. And who else can afford at age 16 to run off to Fiji except a very rich, entitled white teenager. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? So I yeah. just to encompass everybody, uh, you know, I think it's a great—and it makes you uncomfortable. I, it makes me should. uncomfortable in the, in, in the most You're positive ways. you thinking about ways. every
2: vacation we've ever been on and how, like, maybe, like, we were those people. Right. We were those people. Right.
3: Well, you and you go to a certain place, you say, I want to understand. I want to experience the the local everything, Right. And you don't think about it being maybe the product of colonialism or the oppression of those names or, or whatever. You know, we, uh-huh. we're we much like Mark and Nicole, who are just very happy to be watching the hula dance and not thinking much about it. And Paul is the only one.
2: Now, I have to ask you, Janet, as somebody who's sort of an insider in the world of uh, comedy and comedy writing. Without ta- being a rich person no, in I any know. way, shape but, or form. But, but Tanya Tanya McQuad, of course, this is another iconic performance by Jennifer Coolidge.
4: Are you Ms. McQuad?
2: Maquad. One syllable. Maquad. Well, two
5: syllables. But the second part is one syllable. Wad. Maquad.
2: I would just love sort of your general thoughts on Jennifer Coolidge and her performance in the show. As a comedian, can you please, like, just give us your take?
4: Oh, sure. Uh, Jennifer Coolidge is amazing. She came out of the groundlings. She's always been fabulous in things like Christopher Guest's movies. But she doesn't often get this much screen time. And... I honestly didn't know how much we were going to see of her. Like you guys, I had no idea who was going to be this focus. I kind of thought she would be more peripheral because I feel like that's where she ends up in a lot of things, at least that I've watched. I know she's done some stuff that I haven't had the chance to see, but I thought she was magnificent. I was so impressed. I felt like that is such a hard line to walk, being that ridiculous and being that sort of of out-of-touch and also really seeming like a raw vulnerable human being even if you can't relate to anything you're seeing with your eyes you sort of want to take care of her and i think that's one of the the
3: sunset cruise the
4: sunset bit. cruise that yeah she's crazy. a mess she's a mess she's nobody plays a hot mess like her. What did she
5: say? She said she thought it was like feeding the ashes to the fishes. Yes. Yeah. yes. Which, by the way, I was like,
4: uh, yeah, you're not wrong. Like yep. that's actually a fair. That's a pretty good point. I wouldn't have thought of it that way. Now I see why that's super weird. But and and you see why Belinda sort of. You see why that relationship works when it does work and how it does work, and that of course is one of the reasons that makes it so heartbreaking when it starts to fall apart. I also felt like she was. You know mike white if you if you've ever seen Chuck and Buck, watch out if you haven't i mean like if you've if you've not seen Chuck and Buck, I don't know if you want to. um it's a very <laughs> intense movie. It's one of his first. It's real weird and real disturbing, and he's really interested from my perspective in the concept of obsession and human mm. obsession and people obsessing over each other and so that felt very Mike White' style to me to have her be. Sort of fall in love with Belinda and be obsessed with her. And you can't help but think, well, this seems temporary because it's so intense and because it's so just relentless. You know, when is this going to break and when is she going to become obsessed with something else instead? And so... You sort of know where it's got to go from the beginning, but that doesn't make it any less interesting to watch.
2: Oh, I know, and it's also very racially problematic, of course. Something we Huge probably have to oh, say out loud. Dude, I know, because time <laughs>
4: this is a, yet another show
2: where it's like, oh, the magical, okay, the magical black like, woman, yeah. but they actually the show plays with that idea in a way that is so smart. He's
4: Self-aware, he's yes. self-aware about it.
5: Yes. So one of the things I thought was so interesting about this is you notice every time they're like sitting out by the pool or wherever, they're always holding. A a book there was a ho- like a whole i don't know janet you're nodding you've seen this so there was like you know people started noticing oh my gosh they've had like a book stylist and they mm-hmm. so they were always they were reading like nietzsche and like
4: freud and books that were like very like literary fiction. camille paglia i saw in there at some point shane was like, reading
2: that um that uh finance book uh that henry read um it's like, it's like this very brainy, like... Hold on, no, I can tell low-esque. you. So
5: here's the list of books. My Brilliant Friend, Sexual Personae. Oh, interesting. That looks interesting. The Wretched of the Earth. So they had... I just thought it was Blink.
4: Blink. Is that yeah. the one? Yes. Yeah. Oh, he was obsessed. Yeah, he was always reading Blink.
5: Yeah, so it's it's just I just thought that was like that kind of took the douchebaggery of the people that were at this resort to like a different level, but I
2: kind of loved it, right? Because they want to be seen reading the book. It's not, yeah, it's they're holding it up so hundred yeah. percent. We want to read Laura Bricker's book on the beach. We do not want to read some bullshit econ book. That's right. That's right. (laughs) All right. Well, I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know if they have not checked out the hit of the summer, The White Lotus on HBO and HBO Max. Should they do so? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for The White Lotus? Um, This is a thumbs up.
5: You know, I would not have necessarily started watching this, but one of our super regular listeners and friends, Nanita, was watching it. She was tweeting about it, and I was like, huh. It popped up. And I have to say, I think this is my favorite thing that I've watched, I would say, almost all year. It was not what I was expecting. The music was kind of haunting, but also just sort of quirky and took it to another level. And it was a really bizarre group of people. And I think I love people like that. So I was sucked in by all the characters. Super interesting. It's also a commentary. So, you know, I can get my rage walking um sort of side up too when I think about the big picture of what the show is about. But what I'm watching it, it's actually just enjoyable to watch.
4: Jenna Varney, what do you think? I'm also a big thumbs up. I kept wanting to, and I don't know if you guys feel this way or if this is just kind of why would you do this, Janet? But I kept thinking in my mind as I was enjoying it, okay, if I'm putting Big Little Lies and The Undoing and White Lotus in a sort of competition with one another because it, they're all sort of HBO shows about very privileged people who have fucked up lives in some way. Fuck, this Mary is kill, is that what you're doing? <laughs> yeah, that's right. If I had to marry one, it would definitely be this one. If I had to kill one, it would be The Undoing. Yes, agree. And if I had, yeah, uh, to me, if I'm going to watch a show about <laughs> privileged white people and all of the discomfort and issues and things that I should be thinking about when I'm watching it, this is definitely my top pick. It really worked for me. And I just walked away feeling like I love Mike White more than ever. And I hope he does Survivor again because that was super weird <laughs> when he was on
2: it. Kevin Flynn.
3: Uh, I am a big thumbs up. It was not what I thought it was going in. Yeah, you start off with this idea that there's a dead body and we're going to find out what happens. And it ends up being so much more than just what happened. It's an interesting statement on privilege and at a time when that's sort of in the air. And they are difficult topics for a lot of people to kind of confront. And it does give you some characters that you think you're going to like. That are a little difficult to like, though. And then it makes you really think about, what do I stand for? Hmm. That was the most provocative thing when someone said, well, what do you stand for? As I'm sitting there watching, I'm thinking, I don't think I've got a really good answer.
4: And also, I don't want you to be the one to ask me that, young lady. I'm very yes. disappointed by everything you do. I
3: just paid for your trip to Hawaii. Shut the <laughs> fuck up. Even uh, though you didn't get your own room. You get your own room. And why is that like the that room? How come you go to all the way to Hawaii and there's one bedroom? Everybody's got to sleep. That was huge. Anyway. That was huge, though.
5: I have to say, I was looking at that pull-out bed, and I was like, that looks
2: pretty impressive. Okay, you
3: women have to stop talking while the man is speaking. Oh, okay. It's oh, mine I'm sorry. I'm thumbs sorry. Thumbs up.
2: All right. So I'm giving the White Lotus a huge thumbs up. I think part of the delight of this series and the reason why it's been sort of the hit of the summer was that it had almost no promotion. Yeah. This was not a thing that we knew was coming for six months, like Mayor of Town and all these other shows that we've seen, like anything with Nicole Kid, and gets 10 million promos before you see the first thing. And by the way, that's everything because she's apparently in everything now. But we knew nothing about this. It just sort of was like a week of what is this thing? And then it was here. The
3: promo was not illustrative like, at all of what but the show was. It was so delightful
2: yeah. and fun. And I can't help but wonder, like, would I have liked it less if I had been fed 10 million trailers for it? I don't know. Doesn't matter. I still loved it. Big thumbs up for me for The White Lotus.
1: Today's podcast is sponsored by June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game which transports you into a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance set in the glamorous 1920s. You'll play as June Parker as she embarks on a quest to solve her sister's murder. But that's not all. You'll let your imagination run wild as you get to customize your own luxurious estate island with expensive gardens and beautiful buildings. So, can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android.
2: Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of of the week. week. (laughs) There's a heavenly piece of real estate up for sale in Los Angeles. For a cool two million bucks, you can live next to Marilyn Monroe and Hugh Hefner. Well, not live, but you can be buried next to them. The Granite Crypt plot at the Pierce Brother Westwood Village Memorial Park originally belonged to a theatrical composer who was ultimately buried with family in New Jersey. Now relatives are hoping to resell the burial spot for a pretty penny. Buying the plot will give you bragging rights, but when the time comes, you won't be around to enjoy the company. $2 Two million seems like a pretty good deal. The plot above Maryland was resold in two thousand nine for four point six million.
3: And who wouldn't want to sleep above Maryland?
2: All right. So, panel, dig down deep. What celebrity would you like to be buried next to? Lara Bricker, what do you think? Um, I'm gonna say none.
5: I would like to propose <laughs> that the three of you take my box to Hawaii and dump me off the back of a yes. boat. Got it. Good call. Yeah. Perfect. What do you to
4: the fishes?
5: Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I wanna
2: be the fish food. I'm sorry. I, I would do that just like so go to Hawaii, not going to lie. Yeah. What about you, Jennifer? Your
3: privilege is showing, Rebecca. It is. It is.
4: <laughs> I didn't know I was going to answer this, but after reading this article, I realized that I just want to be buried on the other side of Jerry Herman's mother. If she's better than Hef or Marilyn, yes. I mean, if he went there, she's mm. got to be amazing. So put me on the other side because that's clearly the place to be.
3: Kevin Flynn. Uh, I want to be buried next to the celebrity Rebecca Lavoie.
4: Oh, I was going to say Kevin
2: Aww. Flynn.
3: Yeah, and if I go first, somebody throw her in and <laughs> cover her up r- right after me. Doesn't matter. It's not your time. Now's your time, Rebecca.
2: Uh, we all know that you're going to insist on being on the right side, right? Because you're always... like very particular about oh, that.
3: I have, to, I have to sleep on the right you side. You cannot. Because I'm right-handed, right? But so and am I,
2: the... you stupid piece of <laughs> shit. But, but you don't
3: do anything with your right hand. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right. That's going to do it for us. But before we wrap up the podcast, Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? Oh, yes, we do. We are in
5: full on cat mode, people. So we are, you know, we've had other animals. We're back on cats now. This cat comes to us from Pippa Bernstead. And she says, I nominate Woody, named after Mr. Guthrie. He fought the law and the law brought him home again. Do you need more details? Yes. And there is a picture of the cat on his little haystack. He's looking very suspect. So I'm going to get some more details, but I think just based on the, like, shit-eating grin on his face, he wins. I love the haystack. Awesome. It reminds me of
2: the meetings in W1A. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Laura Bricker, if people want to submit their cats to you to be Cat of the Week, they can be any kind of animal, obviously. Of course, you can email us at crimewriterson at gmail.com. But if they want to tweet to you, how do they find you there? At Laura Bricker. And Janet Varney, how can folks follow you online?
4: They can find me at Janet Varney on Twitter and at the JV Club on Instagram.
2: Kevin Flynn, how can folks find you? I'm at Kevin P Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On, and please join our amazing official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. It's actually really, really great. We kick out assholes all the time, so it's all good people. Support the show on Patreon.com/slash Partners in Crime Media. You'll get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, plus Married with Podcast, Laura Bricker's Leave it to Bricker Podcast, and Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the incredibly handsome Olivia Burdett. The executive producer of this program is Kevin Flynn. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement with an ocean view and its own plunge pool. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later.
4: I've been recording for three minutes. Do you need me to do anything to sync? Perfect. You're perfect. Syncing
2: is for people who don't know how to edit audio. It's fine. Okay. The whole thing. They did that at Slate. One, two, three, clap. And I'm like, yeah, that's not going to work eight seconds from now. Like,
3: yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like we say, hello, Janet. And then we find the part where Janet says hello. And we put it together. And it's like, yeah, that's Yeah, completely
2: fine. <laughs> I frequently
4: do the clap. And every time I do it, I apologize to my producer, Julian, because I'm 100% sure it does not help him It doesn't all. help. But he's never told me to stop doing it. So now we're in this weird, like... <laughs> It's a, a film thing. thing. It's a where film he, thing. Yeah, and also okay. the, another that's
2: thing. It. That's another thing that they do at Slate. That they got from somebody who came from public radio to work there is when they make a mistake, they go three, two, one. Oh. And so I was saying, but I'm like, oh, yeah. that does not help your editor <gasps> oh, in <no>. any way. <laughs> It just makes you feel fancy, you douchebag. I can
3: see on the file where you start to talk again.
4: It's (laughs) okay. You can just say, oh, fuck. That's the same thing as saying three, two, one. It still alerts somebody that you want to say something. (laughs) Oh, fuck. Okay. (laughs) Hang (laughs) on.
2: All right. Let's record a podcast. We just do it, Janet. This is how it happens. Okay, great. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime. Bullshit. (laughs) I'm Rebecca Lee. Three, two, one. No, 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 no. no, I promise. I won't do it. Everybody, three, two, one. Clap.
6: (laughs) Partners in
0: in Crime Media. Walmart Plus members save on Meeting Up With Friends.